All right, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on today. I know that we've had lots of conversations outside of, of recording this episode, but I'm very excited to bring you on today. Very excited to be here. This is just awesome to be able to talk to you and, and share stories of recovery and sobriety. Yeah, it's it's great to connect with people outside of my little town that I live in, but it's also just great to connect with other like-minded people who are also in recovery. And I concur. It's being on your show, being able to just the conversations we've had, the fact that we share musical interests um, has been fascinating to learn about you. And and to think that technology is what brought us together. We never would have met otherwise. It's fantastic. It it really is. You know, sometimes I have that love hate relationship with technology, but in this case, it's definitely been a, a fantastic thing. So let's get into our conversation today. I always like to start with two questions. Who are you and what is it that you do for a living? Are those both of them? So I, my brain can start working on those or is there another one? No, nope, those are both of them. Yeah. Like, who are you who, as a person and what is it that you do? Oh my God, who am I? I swear I have Michael Singer from The Untethered Soul going through my head right now. Like, um, you are not your name. You are not your profession. You are not where you were born. Um, so we'll start with we'll start with the definitives. We'll start with the, the things that go against what Michael Singer talks about in The Untethered Soul for what do I do? Um, so my name is Jesse. I am a, let's see, I'm a speaker, trainer, coach, and author. Um, I speak at colleges, universities, addiction recovery centers, as well as businesses, uh, teaching them emotional intelligence, talking to them about how their unconscious drivers are what's fueling their decision-making process. I love to speak. Uh, some people have called me motivational. Some people have called me inspirational. I don't like either of those titles. I like more of the positively motivated toward in instructional. So I, I very much like to inform and instruct and give people action steps that they can immediately take and use. Uh, I train people in neuro-linguistic programming. So people who are interested in becoming life coaches, business coaches, um, hypno hypnosis, people who like to do what we do. I've trained people on how to launch podcasts even and, and how to use neuro-linguistic programming with that. So people who want to unearth their trauma, their suffering, and really figure out fast ways to get at it and heal it. I train people on how to do that. I love neuro-linguistic programming. It is the foundation of my entire sobriety and recovery journey. Um, I train um, on that. I do. Uh, I wrote a book, College Success Habits, for my other podcast, College Success Habits, which is a show directed at helping people in middle school, high school, and college make it through those years without forming addictions. Because my addictive behavior started at eight years old when my mom got Crohn's, so I thought, well, how can I help those people? So I launched that. Um, Speaker, trainer, coach, author. Yeah, coach. I love being a life coach, recovery coach. I'm a certified recovery support specialist, certified uh, peer recovery coach, which I think you had mentioned earlier. You have some of that. You have that certification as well. I'm getting ready to take my master's so I can become a licensed professional counselor. And um, you know, those are what I do professionally. Now, who am I? Um, who I am is a person who will feel like I led a life unlived if I don't shine a light on all my shadows and at least give them a chance to be healed. I lived in darkness for so long. From eight years old, my mom got Crohn's until 18 when I discovered cocaine and LSD and ketamine and ecstasy and all the drugs that, you know, liquor. Um, I was just hiding for so long, Caitlin, 
got hit for so long that now I just want to, you know, you're either thriving in the sunshine or you're dying in the shade. And I want to be that. I want to be that one who thrives in the sunshine. So I just, I'm, I'm just driven to know more about me. I believe in reincarnation. So I believe that this soul chose this life and I'm trying to learn as much as I possibly can so that it feels like I did a good job for it because the next go around could be a whole different scenario. And I don't want it to feel like I didn't, like I squandered an opportunity for massive soul growth. I want to be that soul that I want to be this version of my soul's existence that really put a hundred percent of effort into discovering what life could offer me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, it almost feels like you're a rarity, right. To say, you know, I, I want to chase these shadows about myself. I want to learn about them. I want to hear what they have to say because most people aren't saying that, right. Most people are, are doing what we've always done and, and run from them and what we did in our addiction run from them and hide from them and, and live in that darkness. And being in recovery sounds like it's really shifted that for you where now you do want to live in the sunshine, no matter how dark it can feel or how painful that that can be at times. Yeah, it's it's always darkest before the dawn, right? You've got to have in order to have a summer, you have to have a winter. I, you know, I loved LSD. I, I, I loved what it did for me. Those seven years, I was heavy hitting with it. And the la then from, from day one, let's see, I, I smoked pot my first time, my 18th birthday. Then I took LSD three weeks later at a Grateful Dead show. So I pretty much got right into the LSD portion and I rode that way for seven years. And then the last five at Ball at University of Florida, I was really just a drunk who took LSD once in a while. I loved, I felt like I, I was going through some sort of Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass kind of scenario where I was able to peel back the matrix and see on the other side, but it was only available to me whenever I was on five hits of LSD. And so now what I seek to achieve is, is being able to go through that looking glass and see on the other side of that curtain by doing it through sobriety and recovery. It's substantially more challenging because, you know, LSD does things to your brain that sobriety and recovery don't. But I also do believe that somewhere out there is that kind of self-awareness that is yeah i don't know i would really, i would really get to, i would really be disappointed as a soul if i got up there and like my primary soul was like dude you missed like 37 chances for us to grow now we got to go back and do that crap all over again i want to be the soul i want to be this version of the soul where they're like thank you you really knocked you know you got like 80 percent there and that's what we were looking for we just were looking for a b jesse um i would like to know that i got a b with this life at the very least <laughs> I'll take a B for I'll sure. Take a B. After, after a bunch of C's in college, I'll take a B at this stage for my growth. So yeah, I, I thank you for noticing that, but I don't know. I just, uh, you know, we, we, we've rung the bell when, when, when we get sober, we realized who we were was not who we want to be. So who do I want to be and how much uncomfortability am I willing to step into in order to achieve that? Yeah. You know, something someone said to me the other day, I was sharing uh, some frustration around, you know, parenting with my son. And I was just finding myself putting a lot of pressure on my, on myself. Like I need to fix this. I need to do this. I need to do it this way. So he learns this. And my friend said to me, a similar concept, concept of what you were just sharing is yes, your job as a parent is to guide your child, but also 
you're here to learn something in this lifetime. You're here to learn something, whether your parents taught that to you or you are learning it now, or you're going to learn it 10 years from now. It's the same for your son, whether you teach that to him, he may not get it. And then he, maybe he'll get it later in life or even later in life. Right. So we can take that step back and, and just say, can I take off some of this pressure to be perfect, to see everything I need to see, to be the person I think I should be? I think we can remove a lot of that pressure and just what you're saying, embrace what lessons are coming your way and just do your best, right? Do your best to look at it, to change it and to show up as the best version of yourself. And sometimes we don't, sometimes we don't show up as the best versions of ourselves, and we can we can catch that and we can pivot and we can change that too. And, mm -hmm. and yes, there's always lessons, lessons <laughs> to be learned all the time. It, it goes, I mean, I, I, I speak in metaphors and analogies. So I've always got an example of something and it makes me think of the farmer who sows his field on Monday. He doesn't harvest it on Tuesday, let alone on Friday. It takes months and months. And a lot of the things that we, that we plant the seed today, we may not taste the fruits of the labor for months or years down the road, but it's that discipline to go out each and every day, water the field, make sure that you're getting the right amount of sunlight. Do you need to plant it somewhere different? Like, are you paying attention to your environment and making sure that the seed was planted in the correct spot? Is there somewhere else we can move it? Is there something else we could do to help this seed flourish, knowing the seed will take root and, and sprout and germinate and all that jazz. Now I'm starting to lose control of the metaphor, but it's all going to take some time, in other words. And don't expect an instant gratification, which as addicts, we got very used to. I, I, I don't like this emotion. Instant gratification dictates that I will release impulse control and I will go find drugs at three in the morning if that's what it takes. As somebody in sobriety recovery, we now have to step into a world where instant gratification and impulse control have a completely different meaning meaning for what we're going to do in order to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I guess going into my question and going off of this, what does recovery mean to you and being a person in recovery? I love it. Cause that's, that's how I came up with the name of the show. Um, from sobriety to recovery was born from conversations with my second therapist, Melissa over at Kaiser, where I got sober in Hollywood she was amazing. And we would sit there and we would talk about her triumvirate of recovery was integrity, humility, and gratitude. In my first seven months, I was not humble, uh, had very little gratitude. And while I thought I was living in integrity, I wasn't to the level in which she knew I could achieve. And so for the first seven months, um, she was one of the therapists in the group setting, but I wasn't able to get with her and be, have her become a client. It wasn't until I achieved a certain level of thinking that she said, okay, I believe you're ready for me now. And it was whenever I realized that sobriety isn't the same as recovery. Sobriety is just not using. Sobriety is just abstaining from the vice of choice and also not going to other vices. Recovery is that peeling back of the pain, of the suffering, of the layers that we have created, of going deep inside oneself and saying, why do I think this way? Why do I have these feelings? Why have I been taking these actions for so long? Like I knew taking 10 hits of LSD, 10 hits of ecstasy, chasing it with key bumps of ketamine and an A-ball of Coke at a rave wasn't a good idea. I know what my body was telling me. I know the signs it was sending me. I know that 
crashing back on a handle of Belvedere vodka at that same event wasn't good, but yet I kept doing it. So what were the thoughts, the feelings, and the actions that created this result of this person who just set about to self-destruct himself for 22 years? And, you know, why... Why did I do it? What can I do about it now? How can I begin to shift myself so I can bring about different results? Yeah, and and there's a lot of listeners out there that aren't addicts, right? That aren't alcoholics. And that doesn't mean that you can't be a person in recovery, right? And I agree with you. I learned that sobriety is just being sober, just abstaining. And recovery is a way of life right? It's mm -hmm. about evolving and, and learning about who you are as an individual. And that can be anyone, right? You can be in recovery from uh, relationships, from, yeah, drugs and alcohol, gambling, sex, it, whatever it is. Uh, it can be anything, right? If you're choosing to live a life in recovery, you're choosing to set that foundation and that stage for growth and uh, evolution, Yes. And, you know, we learn in recovery that if one person in the family is sick, then the whole family is actually sick because they've all learned how to behave around this addict, this person who wasn't doing well in order to find some level of homeostasis. And I know your listeners are open-minded, so they're going to embrace what I'm getting ready to say with a very curious ear. I believe that every human on this planet is addicted to something. It could be your phone. It could be the easy ones, you know, liquor, booze, sex, porn, gambling, you know, the easy vices, nicotine. Those are the easy ones to rattle off. But what about immediately getting angry at somebody in your house because they left the backpack in the hallway? Or what about immediately flipping somebody off because they cut you off in the car? Or whenever you feel socially uncomfortable, you pick up your phone and you stare at it. There's so many different ways that we mute ourselves from feeling uncomfortable emotions or we, or, or we act out when an uncomfortable emotion comes about rather than calming ourselves down, breathing into the moment and saying, why is this happening? Why am I feeling this way right now? Let's reverse engineer it. My results are slamming doors. My action was screaming at my spouse. My feeling was they don't respect me. My thought was, how dare they leave a spoon in the sink? My, the circumstance was seeing a spoon in the sink. Like what creates this whole loop? Let's take it apart. Let's figure it out and let's have it give us a, re a result that actually connects us rather than disconnects us. Um, it's it's fascinating whenever I look at things through this spectrum, how many different ways people are secretly sabotaging themselves that if they step back and actually shine a light on it, they'll realize there's so much more to them than that meets the eye. Yeah, you know what it is, Jesse, and I'm glad that you brought this up is the narratives and the expectations that we have. So we have narratives in our head of how we think we should be doing things or how other people should be behaving. And we have expectations of ourselves and expectations of other people. So if they didn't put the spoon in the dishwasher, that's our expectation, not theirs, right? And so we can go into that emotion, whether that's annoyance or frustration or anger. And what you were describing is reactivity, not responding, right? You're just reacting to the feeling. You're not responding to the situation and you're, you are waiting for that other person to do what you think they should do, not taking that step back and assessing what's going on in your world, right? We put so much on other people 
if my kid just behaves, if my partner would just do this. And it, what would happen? I ask people this all the time. What would happen if you just looked at yourself and said, what if I changed my reaction? What if I didn't do this or I did do this, right? What if I let go of the spoon thing and I just put the spoon in the dishwasher? What would right. happen? Right. I mean, we, we tend to judge ourselves based on expectations, but judge others on their actions. And I have whole episodes on what you just mentioned, whole episodes. And I talk about it so frequently that it's, it's, it's laughable with the tribe. And I'll, I'll talk about the recovery tribe I created later. But so there's emotionally triggered and there's emotionally grounded. And I have a whole episode on this. And when you're emotionally triggered, you are going to react. And I have a whole episode on reaction versus response. Emotionally triggered is react. Emotionally grounded is responding. And there's a complete difference. And everybody, all your listeners know exactly what we're talking about right now. They know when they've gone off the handle and had to apologize because five minutes later, they're like, wait, it's just a spoon. Because maybe that spoon's in the sink because they were going to use it again later. You didn't even bother to ask them. You just saw the spoon in there. You asked them not to do the spoon thing. They did the spoon thing anything, anyways. You felt disrespected and you raged against the machine, probably because of programming that's in your head since you were five years old. Well, they also have their own programming in their head since they were five years old. And now we're trying to coexist in a house where we all have this unconscious programming. And if we're not willing to shine a light on it, then it's just going to keep directing us. And we're going to call it fate. We're going to call it just, that's just the way it's always been. I've just always acted that way. It does. That is not a good response to me. That's just how I've always done. It is not a good response. Now stopping at stop signs. Why do you do that? That's just how I've always done it. That might be what we say, but the reason is because I don't want to get in a car accident. Let's make sure we peel it back far enough to really understand the underlying motivation for the behavior. Yeah. And it's being a person in recovery. If you, if you are truly in recovery and I, I like your thoughts on this, if you're truly in recovery, it's hard not to to see these things, right? To see our patterns, to see our behaviors. If you're just not using, but you're not changing either, like you're not looking at all of these things or actively thinking or trying to change it, then to me, you're not in recovery, right? Recovery is actionable. It doesn't mean you're always changing. And I can't tell you how many times in the last few years, even I ran my head into a wall so frustrated that there's a thing I want to change, but I just feel like I don't, I can't, there's something that's preventing me from changing it. And so what do I do? I keep going for it, right? I, I try to figure it out. I keep actively working on it, assessing it, looking at it, looking at the bigger picture. Like you said, looking at that garden, I really liked that analogy. Um, and so being in, being a person in, you know, that's sober, just in sobriety, you're not really assessing all of that. And again, this is with or without drugs, whatever you're in recovery from, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really hard to look away and, and not see things. It really is. I mean, I annoy my girlfriend with this constantly. Well, consistently, I'm not a big fan of universal quantifiers, like always and never and constantly, but consistently she's just like, because uh, I notice habits. I notice patterns. I'm the habit guy. You know, I'm the person who helps you break bad habits and reinstill more powerful ones. And I do this through neuro-linguistic programming. And it's taught me, I mean, I see habits, I see patterns, I see sequences, I see them all over the place. And you're right. If you are just white knuckling it, which is what, you know, which is the early stage of sobriety for some people is white knuckling it, counting the days, but not really doing anything to shine a light on their shadows. And I've got 
one person in my tribe I can think of, he's coming up on like well over a year, white knuckling at the whole time, not going to meetings, not going to therapy, didn't get a sponsor, didn't do it. He's just, he's just abstaining from booze, but he's still beating himself up and suffering and, and going through a lot of pain. Whereas I know some people who are hitting that 90 day point who are already well into their recovery. And by, you know, again, the therapy, the meetings, the sponsorship, whatever that looks like for them. And I think it's just, it's important to realize that time is not a dictator of sobriety into recovery. It's effort, it's work, it's the diligence of introspection and self-awareness. Yeah, and it's it's hard to, if you've lived in that place of self-protection and that it, what it is, like if you're not looking at things, you're self-protecting, right? For some reason, that doesn't feel safe to look at those things, to look at that inner you. And you're right. Absolutely. That the time is not an indicator of that. It, it comes at different times for all of us. And so mm. kind of switching gears a little bit. Um, I, I really want to tackle this concept of the challenges in today's world for, for people in recovery, because right now I, I can't imagine trying to get clean right now. It's, it must be, it's always difficult right? Mm -hmm. Alcohol has always been there. That's really difficult. But now we're having more psychedelics and legalization of marijuana. And there's recovery is changing. I, I see it. People that come into my office, people that I've been talking to, it's changing how people define recovery from addiction, how they're defining that and what that's looking like for people. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, let's go first with, the, with that whole defining in a new era. And you're right with, you know, the increased use of MAT, which is medically assisted treatment. You've got Suboxone. You've got some people microdosing mushrooms and LSD. You've got legalized marijuana in many states. So what a doctor might say, hey, we're going to prescribe this to you. This is going to help may have been considered to be completely against you know, the norm five or even, to, you know, a year ago in some states. So it is very interesting to note, like, what, how is it changing? And, and you're right in this day and age, or, I mean, this feels like we came out of COVID in a very topsy-turvy world. There's so much uncertainty going on to get people to step into this idea that alcohol and drugs are not a solution for look, let's be, like you said, not all your listeners are in sobriety and recovery. So let me be very clear when I say that there is a tremendous amount of our society that's take it or leave it drinkers, right? They're, they're the ones who have one or two every whenever's and they don't, it doesn't, they're, they're not the ones sitting there chugging down their beer before they leave the restaurant. They leave with half full pint and they don't even think about it. I'm that guy who waited for everybody to walk away from the table. And then I finished their pints. Like I had a whole different way of taking on drinking. So for those take it or leave it drinkers, you know, hear this for what it's worth, that we live in a society that's fed us a lie, that, that alcohol and drugs will somehow help us, that alcohol makes us cool, the commercials, the movies, movies, TV shows are horrible. They'll show people plowing back alcohol. Goliath is a TV show where the lead guy is drinking all the time. Mad Men, they were drinking all the time. And then they just, they get up the next day, like everything's hunky-dory. And I'm like, uh, you just showed me that guy drinking a liter of whiskey till two in the morning. Now he's up in court at 8 a.m. That's not the way real world works. And so I think we, we need to first just admit we've been fed a lie by marketing and advertising that alcohol actually makes things better. It certainly has its potential to increase fun for people who know how to manage 
manage it. But for those who don't know how to manage it, for those whose brains have been manipulated and changed over the course of years, because um, it is a disease, because it does change the wiring of the brain, it, it is important for us to realize that, first of all, we've been lied to. And now what are we going to do once we've been told the truth? It's yeah. tough. It is. We definitely glorify the use of alcohol. You know, we have all the moms who are like drink to cope with your kids and, you know, go out with your friends. And it's just, it's very glorified in our society. And, you know, I'm not putting anyone down who chooses to do that. It's, you know, to each its own. Uh, I think that some of the challenges that I've been seeing, and you touched on this, is this post-pandemic world. And the word COVID even just like sends chills through my body because not because of the the illness itself, but because of what it has done to us as humans mm -hmm. and as a society. And I, it's definitely not being addressed, right? For years, we saw this all over news. It's all anyone talked about. It was the media. And now no one's talking about it. It's like rare that you hear anyone talk about it. It's like life just went back to normal. But are we talking about what happened during that time, like the trauma that happened, what happened to us as individuals, the transformations that we went through and how that has impacted, especially those in recovery, you know, and, and those who aren't, I have, I can't tell you the amount of people that have come to me, friends and family and clients and said, I've never been a drinker. I've never had a problem with alcohol or or other things and here I am finding myself using it to deal with my marriage to deal with my kids to avoid these things I saw about myself or just it created a habit I don't know why I'm doing it I yeah. just can't get out of it <laughs> we are hardwired as a species as a creature on this planet to be social we are not meant to be isolated. And when COVID happened and we all got locked into our houses, sure, there's Zoom and there's FaceTime and there's social media and there was avenues for us to seek connection, but nothing will ever take the place of face-to-face -face connection. And you locked people up in their homes. You told them if they went around their loved ones, they could possibly kill them or be killed. So we we blew up the amount of fear people were going to have around this thing. We told them all of this stuff that this is a pandemic, it's going to destroy, it could potentially wipe out the human population. I mean, it was being compared to the Spanish flu and the Black Plague. And so we were all super scared, wearing masks in our car when nobody else was there, wearing plastic gloves, you know, to go shopping. Um, and the crazy thing is, is that we inadvertently, and I'm not going to say we, but the way that it was handled, regardless of what political side of the fence you're on, you'll have a very distinct viewpoint of how that was handled. But let's just take all that away. As a species, the way we handle it was isolate, tons of fear, slowly let everybody back out of their cages, go back out into the world. We didn't discuss the PTSD that was going to come from it, especially for young children who all of a sudden were being told that they could die if they went and saw granny. We literally had to bury people over Zoom because we couldn't go visit them at the hospital before they went away. I lost tons of, of, of friends uh, who passed away, you know, in various countries. And so we had all this PTSD coming out of it. We didn't really talk too much about the mental health aspect of it. And then all of a sudden, everyone's like, Oh, that's it. We're no longer, let's take the counter off the television. Let's not discuss COVID anymore. And let's, in fact, now let's start rolling out some information that may have said that the whole thing was being 
completely blown up in a way that we didn't even realize. So now we as a species feel manipulated and we feel deceived and we're still dealing with the fear of everything that went down. Plus, we probably all lost at least one person to this, even if it was second, third, fourth circle. Take all that into account. And imagine the mental health that we're now going to be dealing with for the rest of this decade and on and on and on. We're not even going to know what this did to a seven-year-old until they're 27 because they won't even know how to articulate it. So I don't know how this has changed the world. I just know it has changed the world. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful and, and well put. And I don't, I just, I don't typically talk about these things on the podcast because I don't get political, right? Everyone's entitled to their viewpoints. Mm -hmm, on Totally. Things. But I, what I do think is important to address is the elephant in the room. And you, you said it is connection as a species, we want to connect. And because we didn't have that connection, because we were isolated, we were left to ourselves, right? Yeah. Or with a bunch of people in our house that we couldn't escape from. And we need, we need to, we need to have, we need to disconnect from those people. We need to have time and space away, but we were trapped and none of us want to feel trapped. I don't care who you are. Nobody wants to feel trapped in a situation or feel like they can't do anything or live in fear. And, and so, you know, this connection piece, it really tore down like our confidence in ourselves, in our ability to trust ourselves. And I, I think the good part of it is that a lot of people, it shifted things internally for people because they had time to actually slow down. And think about things personally, I know it was that forced pause that I couldn't create in my own world. And it allowed me to really see things from a different perspective and lens. Yeah. And then on the flip side of it, you know, we lost connection, we lost confidence. And a lot of people fell into behaviors and patterns that they feel kind of stuck in now, and they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. You know, it's it too. You know, back back on that political aspect, I think that's the part that that destroys the growth that we can take from this. Because this is why I mentioned, like, all that stuff aside, we are humans. We are humans who seek connection. We right. I believe that there is room enough on this planet for everyone to succeed. So whenever I bring up COVID and what that's done to us as a mental health in the mental health aspect, I you know, and I try whether people some people just want to lock in on that. Nope, nope. We're gonna go political or we're going to go governmental. I'm like, no, let's just talk about what it was like to have to say goodbye to grandma on the, on the Zoom instead of seeing her for the family vacation. Like when you missed out on that stuff, it changes us. And it's, I, I can't help but just, for me as somebody in recovery, I remember thinking, had I still been using when COVID went down, I would have drank myself to death. I was so blessed to be sober and be of someone who knew to be mindful of my sugar intake and make sure I didn't sit around. And I actually didn't like, I remember only one weekend, me and the girlfriend watched a TV show called Handmaid's Tale. And we sat and we binged like two seasons in one weekend. It was the only time I binged watched anything in that entire two some years. Um, on the weekdays, I did not sit on the couch and watch TV. I was on my computer trying to build my business 
business and do podcasts. And I started a whole recovery tribe during it. Like I just kept saying to myself, like, use this time to do something amazing with it. Cause when it comes out, some people are going to have Netflix and chilled their way through two years and other people are going to have created something amazing. And I want to be on that side of the fence. And again, it was the addict Jesse in me who just did not let myself stop. Um, looking back at it, it would have been really nice had I just let myself have some breathing room. Um, I do regret that though, Caitlin, I, I do regret not stopping and just smelling some roses. But uh, again, though, I did start taking up 10,000 steps a day during COVID and I did that for over 436 days straight. So I guess I did stop and sell some roses at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think this connection piece, we can bring it back to uh, if you're navigating this world of recovery, you know, from addiction or from whatever that might be, connection is crucial. And whether you say, I don't care what people think, or I don't need people, I don't, yes, you do. We all need connection. It is a basic human need. It's in Maslow's it hierarchy of needs. It's the middle. It it's we need connection and belonging. And I know when I entered into recovery, I the reason I stayed is because I felt connected and cared for by the people in that community. If I didn't feel connected, I probably wouldn't have stuck around, right? If you mm. don't feel welcome or you don't feel or you don't take time to connect or try at least to connect with other people, and have some kind of community, then it's extremely hard to grow into. I mean, you could look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the top of the pyramid is self-esteem and self-actualization, right? So if mm -hmm. you don't have connection, you can't act, you really can't go to the top of the pyramid. You can't go any farther. It's hard to find self-love and self-esteem for yourself and work on any changes in life if you don't have that kind of support in your world. I, you know, I love where you're going with this because I, 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 so I have a whole online academy for people, whether they're in sobriety recovery or not. And I have whole video sections on Dilt's Pyramid, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, and the Six Human Needs popularized by Tony Robbins. And they all have an element of what I'm getting ready to say. And I learned this very early on in my sobriety journey that the opposite of addiction is connection. And a lot of us will stay in these unhealthy habits, whether it be sugar, television, um, whatever behavior is no longer serving us, we'll stay in it because the people around us that we connect with are also doing that behavior. And we don't want to lose that friendship circle. We don't want to lose those connections with our family because, hey, they all sit around the campfire and drink whiskey, or hey, they all go out on Thursday nights and eat cheeseburgers and stuff our face with nachos. But then we look at ourselves in the mirror and we're like, oh, I just put on 50 pounds in a year and a half, or oh, I'm, my drinking is causing my kids to hate me. Uh, but everybody I like and everybody I connect with is doing these behaviors. So there in lies the issue with breaking those habits is now we generally are going to have to find an entirely new social circle that is going to promote that kind of thinking towards that well-being we're seeking. Mm -hmm. Opposite of addiction is connection. Write that oh. down on a whole page. Oh, I did write that down. That hit. That hit me. I really like that. That's so beautiful. It is. It's so true, though. That And you can replace that addiction word with anything right? Mm -hmm. It's connection is necessary for us to, to keep going, to help us feel like we belong, to feel like we're enough. Do we need other people to make us feel that way? No, but to connect to something and someone, yes. 
Yes, you want to find your contentment, your joy internally. That's how I frame it. Like contentment and joy are found internally. External things make you happy. So when somebody's like, I just want to be happy, I just want to be happy, I just want to be happy, I'm like, that's a fool's errand because that's an externally located thing. Whereas you can find, I, I, I don't seek to find joy in everything that surrounds me. I just seek to find, uh, what is it? I, what is it I say? I don't seek to surround my things myself with things that bring me joy. I seek to find joy in the things that surround me. I, I'm not, I'm not constantly chasing a dragon that says I need to be happy every second of the day. Cause four hours on the phone with the, with the health insurance people to make sure that I'm covered for this year is not enjoyable, but when it's done, I feel a lot of joy and contentment knowing I'm healthy and, and covered for the next year. So trying to always find happiness, happiness is a fool's errand, but you can locate it internally and then you'll be able to more rapidly see it externally and you won't be relying on somebody else for your happiness as much as you'll be finding your own internal commit contentment and joy, which will honestly then reverberate outwardly. And then you'll find you're just happier around people in general. I don't know if that made sense, but I felt compelled to say all that. No, I actually heard someone say once we're not meant to be happy all the time and we're actually just mostly meant to be content right and then we find moments of joy and happiness yeah i push contentment all the time right learn lessons from the past be content in the present but also be you know what is it uh passionate what is it uh passionately discontent about my future like i i can be content in the present but also be pushing myself towards a better version of myself for tomorrow. Just because you're content in the moment doesn't mean that you still don't have ambition to better yourself tomorrow. And I think a lot of people get that confused. They're like, oh, so I'm just supposed to always be content, which means I shouldn't go to the gym today or I shouldn't go for some steps or I should, you know, stop mainlining, you know, Crisco. I'm like, that's not what we're saying. Be content with where you're at today, knowing that ambition and drive and discipline can help you achieve just 1% new tomorrow, but be okay with who you are. Look in the mirror and say, I love myself once in a while, but you can still go to the gym knowing that there's another version of yourself beneath that next layer of the onion. Yeah. It's that all or nothing thinking, right? <laughs> Why are we such <laughs> an extreme species? We are, and it's not uncommon. So many of us do it, right? <laughs> and it's like, if it's not this way, okay, well then it's going to be this way. No, there's, there's wiggle room here. There's flexibility. Uh, as there we is. wrap up, though, I know this conversation kind of took a different direction today, and, I, and I'm I'm glad that it did. But one thing I do want to touch on is something that you've talked about a lot on your podcast is power sentences. And yeah. I'm familiar with this concept, and it's something I heard about a year ago, someone else talking about, and then I heard you talking about it. So I I familiarized myself with it, and I I really like it. You know, instead of affirmations, power sentences. So how can those help people build confidence around making changes in their life? So the beautiful thing about the distinction between affirmations and power sentences, affirmations tend to be something like, um, I am strong, I am beautiful, I am worthy of love. And those are all very great things to program into yourself because I am statements attached to your identity. So they can be just as poisonous if we start saying things like, I am stupid, I am ugly, I am not somebody worthy of love. So we got to be really careful of the I am statements we use in our lives because they attach to our identity. A power sentence 
is something that has action words in it. So if it's, I am strong, then the power sentence could be, you know, I am lifting this weight or like, I am like, what is one of the power sentences I recently came up with? Um, I can, I, I recently came up with at the gym. Hold on. Cause my brain came over the other day. I was like, it was so fluid. It's like, um, it's like, I, I am lifting what I see. And it's because I have this ability where I, I have this internal thing inside my head where it's like, I, the only thing that's stopping somebody from lifting something that's super heavy is their inability to see beyond how much it actually weighs. If I tell you to go, Hey, go outside right now and pick up your car. I didn't just, then you say, no, I didn't say that you couldn't go figure out it. I didn't say just do it by yourself. I didn't say you can go get a rope and pulley system. I didn't say you can go get a tow truck. I just said go outside and lift up the car. I didn't dictate terms. So a lot of times what we hear from ourselves is uh, we hear a, a stop moment. You know, go, let's go lift 100 pounds. Well, I can't lift 100 pounds. Well, I realize that if I can see it, I can lift it. I just have to figure out a different way if my own muscles won't do it. So now when I'm at the gym, it's like I see it, I lift it. And then I just go and breathe deep and, again, I'm not over here bench pressing 300 pounds, but it's the mentality of when I see something, I can lift it if I just approach it from a different direction. Did that make sense? Because I don't know if I explained well, that very well. It's the way you speak to yourself in, in the way that we pigeonhole ourselves a lot. Is that's what I'm hearing you say? It's like we pigeonhole ourselves, right? And we limit ourselves from being able to do something um, because our mind tells us we can't. Love that. Okay. So it's like, that's great. There you think you reeled me in. So it's like with my relationship, I want to be a more present boyfriend. I want to know how to be there for her when she desires that. So I can use an affirmation like I am a good boyfriend. That's great. But there's no proof in that pudding. So one of my power sentences with her is that so when I see her, it's like, I am connecting by touching. So I might just go over and like hold her hand or give her a kiss on the cheek. Like that becomes my power sentence. There's action behind it and there's proof. I am connecting through touching. You know, I, um, I am loving, um, I am loving through listening. That's another one I love. So if, if I start to notice that she's saying things that sort of grind my gears, I will say the power sentence, I am connecting through listening, or I am loving through listening. I like the double L in that one. So when people are like, well, how do I make a power sentence? Make sure that it's got action involved and that there's proof that you're doing it. Mm. So action and proof. I, you know, I, I am listening, right? That's very action. That's a power. I am listening, right? Now, where, now where's the proof? Uh, or no, was I am loving, so that's going to be activated through listening. So it's very important that there's an action statement and there's a proof, too, that you're actually achieving that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that additional, you know, it's kind of like an addition to an affirmation because we all want that, right? It's, I want to say it's easy to have affirmations. I actually think it's kind of difficult, especially if you don't believe in them. But what helps us really build our confidence is through those actionable steps. It starts by committing to it and saying it, but it's also through the the action, right? Yes. And then when you do it, you know, you put your hand on your leg on her leg and you're like, wow, okay, like I I did that thing. Yes. Right. And as a result, I connected with her. Right. And that's also empowering and that builds confidence to know. I said I was going to do something and I did it. I committed to doing it. Yes. That's where affirmations, that's where affirmations can let us down. I almost said the word fail, but there is no failure. There's only feedback. That's where affirmations can let us down is because we will say something 
but we don't actually believe it. And so you can, I can sit here and say, you know, I am strong, I am loving, I am good. But if I don't actually have some sort of proof of that, then it's like, you could, again, I am statements are powerful. Self-talk is absolutely dictating our entire lives. So you want to be saying positive things to yourself, but then turn it into a power sentence that gives you an action step and then proof that you're taking action. One of my power sentences for this year uh, was um, conscious awareness creates stability. And so conscious awareness is, is alerting me to like, let's, let's be consciously aware of what I am doing right now. And what is the action or what is, what is the outcome I get from that? It will create stability. So when I notice that I'm getting emotionally discombobulated, when I notice I'm not listening to my loved ones or I'm falling back on my work, I say, okay, where can I be more consciously aware of why I'm doing this, my feelings and thoughts and actions, and then that will create stability. So if I feel unstable, I can tie it back to not being consciously aware in that moment of what I am doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So as we wrap up, if people want to get in touch with you and they want to find out the work you're doing, or they want to work with you, how can they do that? jessemogul.com is the one-stop shop for all of that. Um, if they go find the From Sobriety to Recovery podcast or the College Success Habits podcast, which are also linked on my website, um, you can find both of them there. Uh, in my show notes, there's ways to uh, find me on Instagram, um, find me. I mean, I'm the only Jesse Mogul on the planet, so it's not hard to find me, which was not a good thing when I was in college and getting arrested every other semester. But now as somebody who's actually creating a business that helps people, being the only Jesse Mogul on the planet helps. So jessemogul.com yeah. is absolutely the way to do that. I've got the whole stand store and the Patreon counts and all that other jazz too. But yeah, hit me up at jessemogul.com. Find me on the socials at Jesse Mogul or from Sobriety to Recovery. And yeah, I would love to be able to reach out if anybody would like. Um, in fact, I've got a free gift. I've got an ebook I created called Stop Arguing, um, Start Connecting. And if they go to jessemogul.com forward slash connection um, or just go to the website. Either way, they can actually get this whole ebook. It's five questions that will help you um, ground yourself in any argument and actually figure out a solution for it. And then three power questions at the end that can um, increase connection. So that's available to your listeners if they want to go over there and listen yeah, to it. I'll give you the link for that later. That's perfect. That goes right off of our conversation today. So that's awesome. Make sure you guys grab that. And I'll put it in the show notes below so you can easily connect with it if that's something you're interested in. Jesse, thank you again so much for joining me today. This was a really fun, impromptu conversation. You know, I had my questions written down, but I, I'm really glad that it, it took the direction that it did because I know that it's something that, again, it's an elephant in the room that we're not talking about. And I, I can really appreciate uh this whole topic on, on connection. So thank you again for, for coming on today and sharing all of that. It was a blessing. I loved, I loved connecting with you today. It really means the world to me to be able to share uh, this kind of information with somebody else who, uh, who vibes with me the way that we do. So thank you, Caitlin. Yeah, absolutely.